If you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 21, chapter 21. We're reading the first 16 verses of Acts 21 as we continue on in our series this morning in Acts. Um, I would really encourage you to go online and listen to Pastor Justin's sermon um, because half of you were going to hear that sermon anyway. And, um, you know, it's not very often that you get two sermons to listen to, but um, we, um, as we talked about these throughout the week, you could tell that there were these um, very specific things that God was kind of leading each of us to share out of this passage. Um, and so I, I really think you have an opportunity to go and to hear that. Uh, you know, just, just do that, okay? Just be like, hey, the guy put the work in, okay? He, he put the work in, he gave the sermon, we recorded it. The least I could do is listen to it and pass it on to literally everybody in my phone. So just do that. That's it. And uh, that's all I ask of you guys. Um, we're in this series right now, and we're, this uh, chapter in Acts really is, in a lot of ways, um, the best way to describe it is it's the beginning of the end. This is, uh, this is a chapter in which we see um, the circumstances that lead up to the end of Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry is an incredible ministry. And I think that endings are very difficult for us because even when we know that God is in control and God is involved in our life and in what's going on that we experience, it still doesn't seem right that things, really good things, have to come to an end. Um, we were praying um, for um, um, the Douglas family as, as Ginger Douglas passed away this week and um, as George Douglas, no relation, uh, passed away this week as well. Um, and I know that um, uh, when I, G George Douglas was the longtime um, head of our finance committee here at OCEC and so I first met him in a finance committee meeting, a very exciting environment to meet a person. And um, you know, when I, when I came into that meeting I was pretty surprised because um, most churches, any church I've ever been a part of was very different from this church in one really big way, which is as we sat down here to talk about the finances of the church, we were talking not about a church that was in like massive amounts of debt and had all kinds of stuff that we were trying to find, you know, where are we going to find the money for this or this or this or anything like that. But instead, it was actually a church where you could tell the resources have been handled very, very well and very wisely that um, that we were um, like financially in a very healthy place. And I think part of that goes to some of the leadership of those who were keeping an eye on that, giving accountability to that and giving some, um, some oversight to that, people like George. And, um, and so to get to know him at really the end of his life and the end of his ministry, because that was his last year as the head of our finance committee. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it does... There, there, there is something difficult, really difficult, about knowing that, that even each one of us, the people that we love, the relationships that we have, the things that are good in our lives that we know for a fact God is using, that we know that those things will ultimately still come to an end, you know? What does that look like for something to end uh, well? Um, and we know that George lives on. We know that, uh, that, that, like, that we in Christ live on. But we also know that there is an aspect of this world that we're a part of, the, the, the jobs that we do, the things that we do, aspects of us that, that we know won't necessarily carry on in that same way. 
And I think in the same way, you go, you look at a ministry like Paul's and you go, you know, there's something very difficult for us to wrap our minds around. This guy that God uses in his ministry is so great and effective. And then, you know, why would God let it end? Um, especially when, when he does. We ask the same question about Jesus. His disciples sure did. Jesus, what's going on? Things are just getting good, and now you're done, right? How is it that God is in control in that way? This chapter is about the events leading up to Paul ultimately going to Jerusalem, which is where his ministry will ultimately kind of begin to come to an end. So I want to read the first 16 verses and talk about one of the most debated portions of Scripture, and you'll see why. We'll put it up on the screen, and if you can't read it, I'm sorry, but I just can't help you because we're trying as hard as we can, guys. Acts 21, 1 through 16 says this, uh, and this is, by the way, after Paul, uh, Luke, who's writing, and some others have been journeying from place to place. They've left Ephesus, and they've been greeting people from the churches and visiting them and encouraging them, being encouraged by them, and, and, and all, these, all that's been happening up till here. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters, who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of our Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mnason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And we'll stop right there. And I had a little thing for my slides, so hopefully they were, you guys are moving them back there. Thank you. So Paul has been um, journeying, and the direction he's headed in his mind is pretty clear. I'm going to Jerusalem. And in case you can't tell, there's a lot of people that don't want him to. 
this chapter really is about that conflict of what Paul wants and what the people are saying he should do. And the crazy thing about this is it seems like the, the Holy Spirit, you know, which that's kind of like an indication that the right thing is happening, right? Okay, well, this person, the Spirit led them to do this. Well, that means they're doing the right thing, you know, but this person did this thing not of the Spirit maybe, and okay, they're not doing the right thing. Problem is, Paul, in chapter 20, we, we would have read before this, is, is led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He has a great heart to minister to the Jews there, and um, he has credibility with his background and his um, reputation before he became a Christian, the, the role that he had in there with them, and uh, greater credibility than even the disciples in Jerusalem are, have. And so he is led by the Spirit, he feels led by the Spirit to go there. And yet the people that he's encountering, one after another, are saying, don't go, don't go. This is, and it says they're being led by the Spirit. What in the world is going on here? Okay, we're talking about something that is no easy topic to try to figure out. It is the will of God. What does that mean, right? What is God's will? That's right, I'm going to tell all of you what God's will is for your life. It's just easy, we're going to do that, reasonable expectations. No, in, in the name of reasonable expectations, I will say I'm not going to do that. Um, but when we talk about what God's will is, people have way different ideas of this. In fact, there's like huge theological debates about probably this issue more than any other issue in all of Scripture, and there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. One end is this, God's will is everything that happens. The end, that's easy, right? Everything that happens it happens because it's God's will. He's in control. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. And so all of what happens, happens because God's, God lets it happen, makes it happen, however you'd want to word it. Everything that happens is God's will, no matter what you do, no matter what you try, no matter what we do. No matter how much we worry or stress or care or don't care, God's will. All of it. Other side of the spectrum, God's will is what he wants to have happen. But that doesn't always happen. And that's the other end. Is God's will everything that's happening around us, everything that's happening in our lives? Do we rest assured knowing that God's will is going to be done? Or is his will what he wants to have happen? And our job is to be like detectives and figure out what that is and try to make sure that we are lining up with that. This is no easy question to answer. But as Paul makes this decision to go to Jerusalem, there's, there's three things that we can see in what he does. The first is, and we're kind of going to look at these three things. The first is what he, what he needed. Um, I think the second is what he knew, and then the third is what he chose. So we will talk about what he chose to do. What he needed, what he, what he knew, and what he chose. The first is this, what Paul needed. Can you guys see it clear enough? If you ever like zone out and you're like, oh, what point are we on again? Oh, oh, oh there we go, yeah. What he needed. What Paul needed. First and foremost, we can see that Paul needed people. He needed community. This journey happens, and it involves a lot of people. The people being a part of, of his life is not just they're technically a part of the church, right? Just like the people of the church ought to not just be uh, a relation to you because their, their name is on a membership roll somewhere next to your name, or because you're sitting in a chair here and they're sitting in another chair somewhere on the other side of the room here, and that's your connection to them. No, Paul lived his life in community, and this is a really painful thing to talk about right now because we are limited when it comes to community right now. 
more than any other time in our lives, we have, a, we have, we have really strict limitations on our very ability to be in the presence of other people that we find community in. Paul needed people as a part of this. He needed them for all kinds of different things. One, he needed these people because they helped him see what was coming. He wasn't just discerning God's will by himself. Whether it seems like he took what they said into account or not, we know that Paul did because we know that that's the way that Paul works because Paul cares deeply about the Spirit speaking through the people around him. And so as he goes and he stays with these disciples and with their wives and their children, he stays with their very families, these people help him see and understand what it is for something to be God's will. We are not meant to live our lives in isolation and just figure everything out separate from all the people around us. People can help us discern and understand what we do, what is best. Uh, It's not uncommon for us to look to other people to help us make decisions. Uh, Although, uh, I'll make this easy. I'll make this about someone else, not you, okay? Not you or me. We'll make it about somebody else because, you know, we all know somebody like this. We all know somebody who makes bad decisions because they're getting bad advice from bad friends. And we're like, why do you keep asking those people? Why do you talk to those people? Why do you vent to those people, right? There's a reason you're not supposed to talk to your mom about your wife when she's bugging you. Because, last week we talked about like ulterior motives, right? Because you know where that perspective is probably going to be coming from. I have known people who have, um, I had a friend who their, their marriage fell apart. They, they sort of walked away from their spouse and they, they got a divorce. And when that happened in their life, they were surrounding themselves with people to get direction and input and guidance from all of, the, all of whom had lives with just this like devastation, this wreckage of personal relationships in their wake. So basically, this person, their, their friends all had no relationship with their family, no relationships with people for a long time, like a number of broken romantic relationships or marriages or things like that. And so it was no surprise that when they go and they vent frustrations, when they talk about struggles and difficulties and things that are going on, that these friends would be like, you need to do what's good for you, or you need to do what you want, or you need to to think about you. I mean, the fact is, science is kind of telling us there's too many people in the world. So, you know, we don't have enough food, air, land, anything it seems. So chances are you can walk away from anybody you're having a hard time in a relationship with, and there's going to be a lot more people for you to go and have a relationship with friends, family, somebody you love, whatever it is, right? We, uh, and yet we find, if you do that, that that actually doesn't seem to be true. <laughs> but we know people like that, right? So if you constantly are going to somebody to talk about, let's say, a relationship that is struggling, that is, that is, that is costing you a lot, that is making your life difficult, and the people that you go to are people who... Uh, who who just walk away from any relationship that is difficult, well, then you know exactly what 
guidance those people will give you. This isn't new. This isn't uh, brand new information that I'm telling you guys. This isn't rocket science. People influence the way that we see the world, the way that we value things. And Paul had people in his life who cared above all else about God's will being done and wanted that for him. These people helped him see what was coming, but they also supported him and they encouraged him. They helped him um, in what he was doing. And, and as, as believers, what we're really called to do with the people around us is, unless what that person is doing is like pretty clearly sin, it's pretty clearly sinful, it's like, okay, this is not a good thing, then we really are called to encourage, support, build up, help one another in the things that we're called to do. We're meant to be a source of encouragement. But the other thing that Paul knew that he needed people for, that he needed his community for, was they actually helped him do the thing that God was calling him to do. Every place he visited met his needs and helped him. Helped him do the thing God was calling him to do. God's not, God is, you know, what is God's will, okay? God's will is not that we live our lives in isolation, but is instead that we live our lives in community and that we live our lives in a place where we are vulnerable with other people. Vulnerable meaning Opening yourself up to harm is the definition of vulnerability, right? We, we throw that word out a lot in our culture, being vulnerable, being vulnerable. But true vulnerability happens in community, happens in relationships with people. Vulnerability is not writing something on the internet. That is not vulnerability. I'm sorry. Vulnerability is being in community, which we know is something that God says he, he uses. It is why the church is spoken of the way it is. It is why um, we are feeling the loss of that so much and why we as pastors have felt so convicted that if at all possible, coming together in community, if we can do that safely, is like our top priority, but that that community be centered on the word, that it be centered on, on him. Paul needed community. And there was something that Paul knew, and that comes out in what he's doing here. As these people are telling him, Paul, don't go. Here's what will happen, right? Because they're, they're being pretty clear, right? At first it says they tell him not to go. And then it says a, um, a, like, a, like a prophet comes, this guy comes, and he, he he's prophesies over him. And you know, I'm pretty sure it was as weird then as it would be now if somebody was like having dinner with you and they got on the floor and they're like, hold on a second, I'm going to take your belt, I'm going to wrap it around my hands and my feet, I'm going to go, this is what will happen to you in Jerusalem. Like, okay, I get it, you're being very clear, right? People were very clearly telling him, if you go to this place, you will be taken prisoner, you'll probably die, and that will be the end of your ministry, and it will be the end of you, our friend Paul, that we care about. They're being very clear with him, and yet he still wants to go. And what he says to them shows that he knows something about the way God's will works. And it's pretty simple. It's this. He knows that God's will isn't ultimately what we consider to be safe. Now, are we safe in God? Yes. In that sense, we are. We're eternally secure in Christ. Beyond that, you know what I'm saying, hopefully. God's will is not pragmatic always. It is not always uh, the most conservative thing to do in the situation. It is not always the most uh, practical, the most reasonable. 
It is not always the safest or even the most attractive option. If it was, the Bible would look a whole heck of a lot different. It's very easy for us to fool ourselves into believing that, um, that God's will for our lives is the thing that will lead us to the best circumstances, right? That's, it's just so easy to think that, to be like, well, he, he cares about me, so he wants me, what's best for me. So I want to know what God wants for my life, but that's because I want to be on the path that brings the most reward, that brings me the best life that I can have, and I'm sure God's path is the one that does that. What Paul knew about the way God's will works is that God's will is not ultimately there. Uh, God's will is not aimed toward Paul himself having the most comfortable, safe, easy, best life that he could have. He knows that God's will isn't safe. And that's what he says to people. He says, I'm prepared to be arrested. I'm prepared to even die for Christ." If that is what God, if that is what brings glory to him ultimately, is what Paul wants the most. You know, there's a, um, as a pastor, I've seen this um, as I've, as I've like tried to be a better pastor. Um, you'll have people give you leadership books, you know. People do that to everybody, right? I don't know, they do it to me. Maybe that's saying something. They're like, you should get this book. It's called Stop Talking So Much or no. Um, I don't have that book. Um, But people will give you books and they'll be like, you know, this is a really good book. This person's a really good leader. They're not a Christian or something maybe, but it's still really good. It's practical. It applies. It helps, right? You know, there's principles here that are are apply, whatever. Uh, and, And one of the things that you run into in trying to be a better pastor is you realize that not all the things that we consider to be good leadership from the world's perspective are the same things that God calls shepherds to sometimes. In fact, there are times that God calls these people called the prophets to do things that pretty much always are like, you're not going to find that in a leadership book, right? Tell people the thing that's going to make them the angriest Remind people again and again and again, right? What's a good leader, right? You're not a good leader without any followers. No one told that to the prophets because they didn't have a lot of followers, right? <laughs> These guys had books of the Bible uh, written about them, and yet not a single person. They would devote their entire lives to a message to God's people, and not a single person would change their mind. What a terrible leader, right? Right? If they had just learned these couple of laws of leadership, if they had just learned the importance of of this, you know, oh, Jeremiah, they aren't going to care about what you know until they know that you care, right? So just ease up a little bit and, you know, do this for some people. I mean, there is a degree to which we assume that God's will and our own uh, desires, the things that bring... uh, benefit to our life and our world that bring us the best result, we just assume they're the same thing. But that's very different from what uh, scholars and theologians call the downward mobility of Jesus. That sounds exciting, right? The idea that the more you become like Jesus, because he's the example of this himself, the more you become like Jesus, the more you should expect to suffer. That God's will actually 
doesn't save us from that thing called suffering, from those difficult circumstances we try to avoid. Paul knew this about God's will. So the question still remains, okay, great, but should he have gone? Because this is the question that people have asked for thousands of years. Should he have gone? You know, you have uh, the fact that he was compelled by the Spirit to go, that God seemed to bless his travels, that he was uniquely qualified to speak to these Jewish people in Jerusalem. Certainly, God's will isn't determined by the easiest or most reasonable course of action, so we know by even what happened to Jesus that, that death and arrest doesn't mean that you're outside of God's will. And, but on the other hand, they urged him, the people, through the Spirit, including Luke, who's writing this, not to go. Paul's passion for the Jews, a lot of people think, may have blinded him to a bigger calling. He may have just felt so called to this one group of people that he let that become like too much of a focal point for him and he, he, he paid a price that he shouldn't have been paying. You know, one of the, one of the interesting things about this is like um, as much as it is debated over, you know, should he or should he not, don't these things contradict themselves? Rather than um, have a faith that is weaker when you encounter something in the Bible that seems to contradict itself, oftentimes you can have a faith that is strengthened by it because you go, uh, who on earth is going to write something like this if it didn't happen? I mean, if, if you had to write the account of your life, of your family, of things that have happened would things be one-sided or would they be about as confusing and almost at times contradictory, right? Wouldn't somebody look at it and go, well, wait, over here, it looks like you did this, but then it seems like God may have done this over here, right? I mean, how easy would it be for Luke to just not mention all of the people saying it's not God's will, right? And yet he labors to mention that, to bring that up. This is the kind of complexity that only really comes when you're recounting something with all the messiness of what happened as like a limited, finite person, and you're account recounting it to other people. That's why we read about it like this. So the answer is this. What did Paul choose? Did he choose God's will? Did he not choose God's will? The answer is, I'm not going to tell you yet. So when I was a kid, I liked to read books, and I mean, I still do, but I like to read books, and my favorite books to read one of my favorite series of books to read was called Choose Your Own Adventure books. Has anybody ever heard of these books? Raise your hand if you have. Choose Your Own Adventure. Okay, a couple people. Choose Your Own Adventure books. When I was a kid, I believed that the most brilliant minds on the planet were not rocket scientists, were not physics, physicists making new forms of energy. It was the people that wrote these books because I could not for the life of me figure out how they did this. You start reading a Choose Your Own Adventure book and it'll be, you know, here I'll, I'll show you a picture. This is a bunch of them, right? You know, uh, you're reading about the house of danger, and it's about a character who goes into a house of danger, right? They walk in, and it says, you hear a sound past the front door, but you also have a warning in the back of your mind that says, don't do this. And then it says, if you go in the house, turn to page 20, if you don't go in the house and go back home, turn to page 2, Right? By the way, if you're a beginner to this thing, don't turn to page two. Don't, don't take that option. It's going to end pretty quickly. 
So you, you can choose your own adventure, right? And then the book branches off. And then the way they do this, again, I'm not, I have no idea how they did this, right? It must have been supercomputers, how they made it all work with, the, with the, all the options and everything. But you'd go throughout the book, and there was all these ways that things branched off. And the problem was, apparently I was very bad at choosing adventure things because I'd get to, nope, it's over, I'm dead. Nope, I'm, I'm done. I went home and took a nap. Nope, I'm done. I had to take out the trash. Nope, I fell in a hole. Okay. And so every time I would read these books, I, I, I would say I read them with all my fingers. I read them with all 10 fingers because basically you, you go, okay, chapter, do this, put my finger here. I could do this. Okay, let's see where that goes. No, that's not good. Okay. And then, okay, wait, well, let me try these two options. I'd stick two more fingers in. I try to keep all my options open. And uh, that was the only way to really feel like I was getting the most out of this book that I bought. Because um, you just can't, you just, you can't just read it from cover to cover. And it is infuriating because you're like, I paid for all these pages and I want to get the most out of it. But that was the only way that I could think to do it. I obviously wasn't smart enough to use like paper. I know, I get it. Okay, bookmarks, they had those back then. But this is exactly the way that when we talk about God's will, that when we talk about what it is that he maybe wants for us, this is the kind of almost paralysis that a lot of us will go through. If we think about it this way, we go, I, I want the, the book to be as long as possible. I want it to be the most eventful possible. I want it to be the best thing possible. I want it to be the right way through, but I'm not sure exactly how to do that. And so let me just, is there a way to figure it out? And a lot of the, the confusion and the fear about this idea of what does it mean for something to be within God's will comes from this sort of need to know that what we choose is the right thing, right? The right one to choose. Is there anything harder than thinking about even a life that is difficult, that involves suffering and, and costs greatly, and then to feel as though somehow we're not on the right path, right? You know, it's one thing to have things be hard when you know that what you're doing is the right thing to do. But what if you're not sure? I mean, I have experienced this kind of paralysis so many times in my life. We all have, right? Do I take this job? Do I not take this job? Do I move here? Do I not move here? You know, do we, like, should we have a family? Should we have a bigger family? Should we adopt? Should, we, uh, should I tell this friend what I feel like I need to tell them? Or do I not? Because I think if I do, then maybe... That's the end of our friendship, and, and, and then there's no more opportunities to tell them anything. You know, what do I do in this relationship with this person that I love? What do I do at this season of my life? What do I do because I'm sick and I don't exactly know what treatment to go through? I mean, like, there are so many times in our life that we sincerely, we sincerely are like, I just want to know what God wants me to do. I just want to know. I'll do it. I will do it. I just want to know what God wants me to do. What Paul knew about God and about the way his will worked was what's summed up in Romans 8, 28. He said, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul knew that life within God's will, here it comes, is not about what you choose. It is about the way you go about living out the choices. That is God's will. God's will is how we live, not necessarily that you make uh, the right turn versus the left turn. Now, uh, Paul 
describes it this way. He says, for those who are what? Who? Who? Who do all things work out good for? Guys, life is hard right now. Everything's hard. Things are crazy. Things are nuts. I want to have good news to give to people. God works all things out for good. That's pretty good news. Who does he work them out for? Who does he work them out for? Just tell me who these people are, what they have to do, who are called according to his purpose. If my life is about his glory, if my life is about his purpose, if my life is about him and not myself, then all things will work together for good. This is uh, the good news that Paul gives us. Paul knows ultimately he chooses God's purpose. The fact is, Paul can go to Jerusalem and have it be God's will because of how Paul goes to Jerusalem, because of what Paul does every step of the way there, because of how he navigates the suffering and the pain that come, and because of ultimately the goal of all of that is that God would be glorified. That is it for Paul. That is what life is about. And if Paul hadn't gone to Jerusalem and he had continued on his ministry in some other way, then what we know about Paul is that he would have done that and lived that out for the glory of God. I have, uh, I have had so many conversations with people, even about this passage, you're like, man, those are, those are kind of boring conversations, right? How many conversations have you had about one passage, right? This is a, this is a thing that I've talked with other pastors about um, as I've preached on it before, and, I, and I've, I've, I'm, I'm kind of like a person who will fixate on something that doesn't sit well with me, and I'll be like, I just, I need to understand this. I need to get this. What was the right option here? What was the right road to take here? And it is it is so easy to get stuck in that place instead of seeing the fact that what we see in the Bible is these people who to follow God and to have faith to be within his will is to be somebody who says, whatever I ultimately do tomorrow when I wake up and I go about my day tomorrow, whatever I ultimately do, I do for the glory of God. I don't do it for the glory of myself. I don't do it for the best life that I can have for myself. I don't do it hoping that it will lead to the best possible outcome. That is the goal with which I will live my life. If I choose his purpose, then I can be confident that things work together for good, even if it doesn't feel good right now, even if I can't add up all the math at the end and have it make sense on that piece of paper, it's because his good is not always something I can even fully comprehend. My incredible top secret guaranteed to work method for doing God's will, knowing God's will, is this. Step one, spend time with God. Seek the heart of God. Seek the heart of God and pray your will be done. Seek good advisors. Seek people in your life who also seek the heart of God. Not not just the people who are the most successful, not just the people who are um, even maybe, I know this sounds kind of weird, but the wisest people. I'm not saying find the foolish people, but 
It is so easy for us still, even in the church, to look at church examples of all of the kinds of people that, that the world would say are the best and most valuable. And yet the Bible tells us again and again, God uses the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. Some of the people who have given me the clearest sense of, of what it is to, to see the heart of God are people who are living practically in poverty because of the choices that they've made for the kingdom. And these are not people who are successful in the eyes of the world. Spend time with him. Seek people and community. Realize that God's will may not be what you want. Don't make the mistake of just assuming that God's will for my life, God's direction for my life is this thing that is supposed to ultimately result in me having the most fulfilling and better life. This is a really hard thing, the younger that we are. When, when God's will is all about a path that we're trying to figure out which one to get on. We just have this fundamental belief that if we can understand what God has for us, then we'll find the best path in our lives. But that path is the most personally fulfilling path, right? And the last step, start moving. Just go. Just do something. Right? It's like sitting in the parked car and trying to decide where you're going to go. I, I've, I've talked with people who like, can't, they're, like they, they're, they're going into college and they don't know what they want to do and what they want to be, so they don't go into college yet. And, and I'm like, you might need to just go, you know, to figure it out. Because like, you're not going to know just sitting in one place, you know. The process of seeking God's will in his heart for our life is ultimately a process that changes us. Asking God to use us for his glory changes us. I take so much encouragement from this passage because I see that I don't have to worry and be afraid that I'm going to make the wrong choice, that I'm going to end up on the wrong side of things. That, that, that really, so many times in my life, God has been saying to me, rather than when I've been asking God, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I figure this out? What is the right step, the right path, the right answer? Instead of God giving me an answer that I'm maybe not hearing or I'm, I'm not listening for, I'm not getting figuring out, instead, so many of those times, what God has been saying to me is, here is how you live tomorrow. Here is how you live right now. Here is how you do my will now. Our understanding of God's will is focused on the, the path, the direction, the choices in our life. And yet when the Bible talks about it so much of the time, it's talking about God's will as in his desire for us, his children, and the way that we ultimately choose to live, the things we dedicate our lives to. I've said this like a lot, but it's so true that as I talk to people who have come to faith in Jesus, overwhelmingly so many more people have come to a saving faith in Jesus, not because of all the Christians in their lives who had really easy and rewarding and successful lives. It is because of the people in their lives who followed Jesus who suffered, who weren't apparently on a path that seemed to be the easiest, most enjoyable best path. 
And yet those people exhibited something in that that showed them that God is real. God uses those kinds of circumstances just as much, if not more, than some of the rewarding ones that we look for, and that's what we see in the ministry of Paul, just like we saw it in the ministry of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I, I could just kind of talk about this, it feels like forever, because I have, I have at so many points in my own life really, really been confused and frustrated. I even think like right now, this season of life, with everything we're dealing with with COVID is such a good example of it, Lord. I mean, even there have been so many times I've, I've asked myself, God, what do you, what do you want for our family? Like, like, what, like, what are we supposed to do um, for our family? What are we supposed to do with our church? What are we supposed to do uh, right now? Which, wh- what direction do we go? Uh, our, our country is in this time that we get in every four years with a presidential election where we are, it seems, everything is hinging on this one decision, this person, you know, which way, one or another, and they certainly couldn't be more divergent. God, would you help us not to be people who are obsessed with, consumed by, distracted with the direction of things, but that we are instead looking inwardly at our hearts, which is what you tell us to do, and asking How am I going about taking these steps each and every day in a way that is God's will, in line with God's will, Lord? Help us to do that, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.